0: There's always one question, that, uh, one comment or something that elicits the most amount of questions, and John Piper, you've done it uh, again this time. And uh, by far, the majority of questions, not the majority of questions, but the largest amount of questions have to do with your comment last night about the need for us to simplify our lives. People want to know what you meant by that, how do you do it, how do you do it, How how do we do it? the value of it, how it fits into your topic last night. Can you give us a simple answer on that? I don't have any one lifestyle in my mind,
1: but I think almost everybody can put governors on your spending. And uh, everybody knows the principle that expenses rise to meet the income so that everybody is just getting by. If you make 30,000, you're just getting by. If you make 50, you're just getting by. If you make 100, you're just getting by because you got to put oil in your airplane and rent a hangar and and, uh, cash flow is difficult. So if you're going to uh, keep from being one of those just getting by millionaires, then you need a cap. You need some um, governors so I'm just pleading with people, though I don't have any clear, simple, one-size-fits-all criteria for what that lifestyle is. I want to, I want everybody to be struggling with it. That's what I want. I want everybody to be reading the Gospels, looking at Jesus who had no place to lay his head. You follow me. Birds of the air have nests. Foxes have holes. Son of man has no place to lay his head as the Father sends me. So send I you. Now don't overinterpret that. I just say there's a, there's a pointer there. There's some issues here for the evangelical church. So figure out a wartime. I like that better than simple, because Ralph Winter taught me in war you might need a B fifty two bomber. It costs you a few million dollars. You might need a computer and so on. Simple means go to northern Minnesota, grow carrots, and don't you know. Don't be useful to anybody for anything. That's not the point. Simplicity does hardly anybody any good. But a wartime lifestyle says, okay, we're in a war, and in a war you use metal differently, you use rubber differently, you use everything differently because you've got a cause you're living for. Most Christians don't have a cause they're living for. And then you simplify to give, it, give everything above that away. You've got hard decisions to make about retirement, kids' college, and so on. And every pastor should just be getting his people to think and pray and talk about those and read literature that summons towards wartime lifestyle. So, no, no simple answer, no uh, one-size-fits-all diagram, but rather a plea for the people of God to move towards need, not comfort. Move towards need, not comfort. And don't think you need a fatter and fatter pad to live on. Think, rather, in terms of of streamlining so that you can give as much away as you possibly can
0: for the cause. Uh, Al, RC, you uh, are involved with organizations, uh, Christian ministries, um, that have... Larger and larger challenges and demands. Uh, is there a is there an application to a Christian ministry? How do you how do you grow and reach more people and be more effective and train more staff and and keep your ministry uh, reflecting and teaching what John was talking about there uh, just by the
2: modeling in your ministry with great difficulty. Uh, I was sitting here thinking while John was talking, and I agree with what he said, but to me the greatest scandal in the uh, evangelical world is reflected in a poll. The last one I saw said that of those people who identified themselves as evangelicals in America, only 4% of them were tithers. And we're not talking about, you know, he was talking about going well beyond the tithe We can't even get people to the tithe level. Ninety-six percent of professing evangelicals are systematically robbing from God. And the reality of ministry is, Paul, that one of the greatest barriers we have to extend the ministry of the kingdom are the financial limits that we have because it costs money to do ministry. It costs money to put a seminary together. And it costs money for John to have his church and to have his ministry. It certainly costs money for Doug to run his schools and all of that. And uh, uh, you know, any ministry, if I have $100, I can do $5 worth of ministry and waste $95. Or I can do $50 worth of ministry and blow $50. Or I can do $100 worth of ministry if I'm efficient, okay? What I can't do is $105 worth of ministry. So that there is a stewardship issue here. But again, to second, what John was saying, to me, the way I look at it is investment. I'm a conservative economically. I try to teach my kids and students. And we have young people learning the principle of delayed gratification, the principle of investing in the future, and allowing their investments to to work for them from an economic perspective. And I think that the most fabulous and significant investment any person can ever make is in the kingdom of God. I mean, that's the one place where we know for sure there's never going to be a bear in the woods (laughs) to destroy that market because it's always a bull market uh, when we support our king. And I really believe that. We need to see our stewardship, our tithing, and our giving as an investment in the most important enterprise under the sun.
3: I want to pick up right where R.C. left with the issue of investment because I think uh, this is something that perhaps even uh, American evangelicals may understand better a bit now than even uh, years past. Uh, There is a sense in which It is clear by our investment pattern where our treasure lies. And what we seek to do is to invite persons to invest in something that really matters for eternity. Now, I really like what John talks about with a wartime ethic or mentality. Uh, John was recently on our campus, blessed us tremendously, and told us we had far more than a B-52. And uh, there's a sense in which we certainly do. We have inherited a, a massive campus, a great beauty, and an enormous infrastructure. And I, I want to say that we, we want to understand the demands of stewardship in the most biblically faithful manner. I agree that we're in a war. I think it is a war uh, for the long haul, so to speak. We don't know the Lord's timetable, but at this point we are the church militant. And I believe there, there is the necessity of some institutional uh, platform accountable to Scripture uh, for the church that trains ministers of the gospel and, and can become a think tank repository uh, for the equipping of the saints. That does take money. It should be done well. And here, the standard of excellence uh, should be something beyond our apology. We shouldn't apologize for seeking excellence, but we should be offended by opulence. And sometimes knowing the difference between the two is, is is difficult, and we need to confess that. And that's why we need a good, we need trustees and constituents and churches to hold their institutions accountable in this matter—not just to make sure the books balance, but to make sure the funds are
0: rightly invested. Thank you, Doug. You've been sitting there uh, rather peaceably. Let me. Uh direct a question your way. It's a very direct question. I'm sure you're used to getting direct questions because you speak very plainly and directly. So let me just uh, read it as it has been asked here. Uh, The questioner says, You began your talk by slamming brothers in Christ who design seeker-sensitive services. You ended your talk by encouraging us to love our brothers, lest we appear odious to the world. Should we attend to your words or to your actions, or can it be both? (laughs) Who is that guy? <laughs> Mrs. Sproul, it says here. Anything.
4: In that case, she's quite right. <laughs> One of the things, I, I thought of mentioning this as an illustration, but I wasn't sure how many people here were aware of the magazine that I edit in which some of these same things that I addressed in the talk are treated with imperfect tenderness. and. The, the fundamental question that we're getting at here, the thing that I would like to answer, as, provide as my answer to this, is the question: What would Jesus do? All right. Now, however, uh, sappily that's been marketed, and it has. I think it's a wonderful question. The question, the question that confronts us, is: What does it mean in a disobedient culture to be prophetic? What does it mean in, a, an, in an insolent and arrogant culture to confront that insolence and arrogance? Well, one of the first things it means is that you will be accused of being insolent and arrogant. Who do you think you are challenging? Everybody's going this way. Who does Martin Luther think he is? Who does, well, how, how dare you? Now, the, the thing that we've tried to do is, is ask this question. How, how did Jesus talk how did he address the respected theologians of his day? Well, he called them basically a bag of snakes. All right? Now, what we do is we we gloss over, you know, Jesus is talking. So these are all holy words. All right? So we go into holy word mode. I, in my neck of the woods, you can drive up to Court Lane, which is an hour and a half drive and sometimes I've driven that stretch of road and and I find myself approaching Coeur d'Alene, and I know that I had to have gone through a small town on the way but I don't remember I don't remember it but I've driven that road so it's 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 frequently traveled it's the same way with the text of scripture we just skate over the surface of many things that Jesus said and did and we don't recognize as Chesterton once put it that Jesus threw furniture down the temple steps he he was not uh, he, he was not a tame lion. He was someone who confronted hypocrisy. He, conf- he confronted and rebuked, in the strongest possible terms, uh, the arrogance of man-centeredness. And I believe that we are called to imitate Christ in all that he does. Now, this is the, this is the lopsidedness of our age. Everybody, when, when we ask the question, what would Jesus do, everybody acknowledges that it's appropriate to imitate Christ in his love or Christ in his gentleness or Christ receiving the children and I believe we ought to imitate him in that and how we receive the children and how we bless and how we speak to people in our family and how we love our children I believe that we should imitate Christ and pursue that imitation with a passion but we should also imitate Christ in how he handled theologians that corrupted the Word of God we should also imitate Christ in the way that he spoke in church that got the people in his hometown so hopping mad at him that they wanted to throw him off a cliff. How did he, how did he do that? How do, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus begins by talking to a bunch of people, it says, who believed in him. And so Jesus begins discoursing with these people who believed in him, and by the end of the discourse, they're trying to kill him. Now, what we say is it's safe to imitate Christ in his love and his gentleness, but it's not safe to imitate Christ in his sarcasm or Christ in his biting cultural criticism. You can't imitate him over there, but you can imitate him over here. Well, I I don't know any biblical grounds for that selectivity. If we're going to imitate Christ, we should imitate Christ. If we want to be like him, we should want to be like him. And that means the whole thing. Now, I I do believe that there are dangers in, in imitating Christ's polemic, or John the Baptist's polemic, or Paul's polemic. Or Jeremiah's polemic. And it's it's very hard to find a biblical character who doesn't have a polemic to imitate. And that polemic, and, and the other interesting feature is in the modern evangelical world, which has all the doctrinal rigidity of a bowl of pudding, right? It is hard to find anybody imitating anybody's polemic. Now... I don't think we imitate it perfectly. I don't believe that we imitate Christ's love perfectly, his gentleness perfectly. I don't believe that we imitate anything he did perfectly. But I do believe that we are called to imitate him across the board and we can do so confident that God has justified us and, and receives our imperfect attempts at imitating him because of his perfect active obedience and passive obedience in his life and his death on the cross. So this is a long way of saying that we we want to be like Jesus Christ we want to be like the Apostle Paul we want to turn the world upside down and you don't turn the world upside down by being nice you turn the world upside down by being biblical that means you love what God loves you hate what God hates you praise what God praises you condemn what God condemns you make fun of what God makes fun of one of the most glorious sections in the Bible is God God coming in at the end of the book of Job You know, where were you, oh man, when I created the world? Tell me, since you know so much. Some of the loftiest sarcasm you'll find anywhere. And it's dangerous for a creature to imitate God. It's dangerous for a creature to imitate Christ. But that's our calling. We're Christians. We have to imitate him. So do I slam secret sensitive worship? Yes, I do. Do I slam things that people consider right and proper and people are well-intentioned? Yes, I, I, I do that. Do I do it with fear and trembling? Yes, I do. Do I sometimes get it wrong? Yes I, yes, I do. But I think it would be a graver danger to sit back and
0: get it wrong that way. Anybody want to jump in on that? Yes.
2: Yeah. I I wish that people in this room would have an opportunity to spend one week reading my mail and see how they could absorb the nasty grams and the hate letters that come into my office every single day. And I only see a small portion of them because my staff uh, bends over backwards to... Shield me from them, because it's the old story that if you get 20 letters and 19 of them are grateful and thanking and complimentary and one of them is nasty, the one that you think about all day is the mean one. But I have to understand something, that if I write a book, if I give a speech, if I get on the radio and I put my thoughts and my ideas in the public arena, It goes with the territory that I have to be willing to let people critique me, attack me, differ from me, and debate with me in the public arena. The most most serious cardinal sin as an evangelical you can ever do is to make some statement that's critical of Billy Graham. I know because I've done it. And you say, how dare you? criticize Billy Graham. I said, because I think Billy Graham is wrong on that point, And I think he, because of his, the enormous trustworthiness that he has in the evangelical world, can do a world of damage when he talks like that. And he says it in the public domain, then we enter into debate in the public domain. The movement of what's called shorthand seeker-sensitive worship has been carefully thought out, carefully devised and is being marketed and programmed around this America in the public arena as the way to go to reach a fallen world. And the motives behind it, I am convinced, are genuinely, sincerely concerned for saving lost people. I also believe that they're sincerely wrong in terms of their emphasis on adjusting the nature of worship. For the sake of the unbeliever, which I believe, I believe that corporate worship is established by God for his people, and it is God who has established how he is to be worshiped. And I talked to the founder of Seeker Sensitivity 20 years ago. And he told me that he had done his research and taken the public polls in Chicago and over 2,000 people, and he talked to people who had left the church, and the number one reason they gave for leaving the church was the church was boring. The number two reason was the church was irrelevant. So he had a passion to reach those people, and he said, what I'm going to do is construct a church that no one will ever think is boring. We're not going to have a chancel, we're going to have a stage. We're not going to have a choir, we're going to have vocalists. My church is not going to look like a church. I'm going to make a building where people are comfortable, who are unbelievers, and I'm going to get through all of the trappings of religion to reach these people. And that was the strategy born of a passion to reach people for Jesus Christ. And I said to him 20 years ago, I said, when I read the Bible, and I see the records of all kinds of people who encounter the living God, there is not a monolithic response. Some people are giddy with joy. Some people pass out. Some people weep. Some people run. Some people tremble. In fact, most people tremble. But of all of the accounts that we have in the Bible of people meeting God, I see not a single reference in Scripture of anyone ever meeting the living God and being bored. Because the one thing God is not is boring. And if you want to have worship that excites people, then you need to focus in that worship on who God is. And if God is the center, and I don't want to take a strategy to disguise it, or to hide it. I don't want my church ever to be considered a stage because in this culture a stage is a place for entertainment not a place to meet God. And so though I appreciate very much the motive behind all of this it terrifies me. I also say this 20 years ago I was in the backseat of a taxicab with Francis Schaeffer in St. Louis and I said to him I said, what is your greatest concern for the church right now? And his answer was, unhesitatingly, he responded, statism. That was 20 years ago. If you would ask me that question today, what do I think is the greatest danger to the church of Jesus Christ right now at the beginning of the 21st century? I would say it is this movement of worship in our culture. scares me to death.
4: I can add something to that very quickly. Not only we've been dumbed down because of this entertainment mentality So that we can't process doctrinal distinctives anymore And so now this has been a gigantic cultural bait-and-switch operation so that we what, what has happened is everybody's Happy, you know happy clappy, and we're worshiping Jesus whoever he is and nobody's been told who he is nobody's been taught who he is because that's all irrelevant now and now in the last few years as John Piper can tell us we've got this openness of God theism that's now introduced which presents a radically different Jesus a radically different God it's it's a heresy with a capital H and evangelicals are are struggling wrestling with the issue I I wonder why moderates and liberals and evangelicals always wrestle with these issues instead of beating them up but they but they they wrestle with them which means that they go into the conflict prepared to lose and so they, they've gone into this prepared to lose and we are about to lose in North America within the next generation unless God gives a reformation we are about to lose our lampstand entirely and it began with a bunch of little uh, adiaphora, secondary things why make a big deal out of seeker sensitive, well there's a strategic move here and and the the Doctrinal life and breath of the evangelical church in North America is imperiled And that was the first stage in that strategy and we needed people attacking it Long before we began attacking it because when you begin attacking it, it's controversial that means you're already too late
0: John wanted to jump in here John just before you do let me say I want to throw out one last question of my own here in light of our topic upsetting the world and your comment about biographies. I'd like to finish by having each of you maybe suggest a world upsetter out of church history and maybe a good biography of that person, someone you respect and someone that we might follow up on here. So be thinking about that while John wades into this current question. I want to go back to Doug's
1: uh, defense of sarcasm and uh, irony and um, to balance it. Um, One of the reasons I have a problem with simply do what Jesus did is there is one huge difference between me and Jesus and that is sin in me. Um, There are others. (laughs) And that one is picked up by the Apostle Paul because when he argues for tenderheartedness In gentleness and forbearance, he grounds it in the fact that you were forgiven. Therefore, forgive. In other words, Paul draws attention to the very thing that distinguishes me from Jesus when he's arguing for my tenderheartedness towards people. Therefore, we must stir into the equation of how I respond to something I regard as reprehensible, the fact, another place he does it, Galatians six: uh, If your brother's taken into fault, restore such a one in spirit of meekness and gentleness, lest you too be tempted. And so on. There seems to be added to do what Jesus would do. And remember, it's not just dangerous; it's much more dangerous for you than for him. Therefore, James, be slow to anger, quick to hear. Anger is a much more dangerous emotion than gentleness or. Meekness. I think it's much more explosive, and and one of the reasons for that is uh, not only that I'm so wired to uh, exalt myself in being angry towards others or in finding uh, a clever way to put them down, but I think I, f- I wish I could remember the pastor who said it. He says, um, "You cannot." make much of Christ, oh, the words are so good and they slip my mind, where uh, people are thinking about the excellence of your rhetoric. That's a lousy paraphrase. Now, Doug Wilson is absolute genius at sarcasm and irony. And I would just wave a little yellow flag to the effect that you come away from these articles thinking oh this is what this is what the quote said you can't exalt Christ and commend yourself as clever you're very clever, really clever and uh, I think we need you like crazy I read Cadenda Agenda and I wouldn't waste my time on it if I thought it was only contaminating but I tell you, I can OD on it fast because it is so well done from a rhetorical standpoint. So just a little warning that um, I think there need to be more obvious tears in Credenda Agenda. More obvious tears. Jeez. The one illustration I would give is, uh, don't clap about that. You don't need to do that. One, here's, the, here's the illustration. Um, Jesus is in the synagogue and here's this man with the withered hand and he wants to heal this man. And the religious leaders that he calls a bag of snakes elsewhere, they, they're upset about this. And it says, he looked, this is I think Mark 3, 5, he looked around on them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And that's what I want to pull together. What does that look like in a sinner like me? Anger for sure when I see what's being done in open theism. Now how can I be grieved at the damage and have the grief come out? It's got to show with some tears as well as the clever mm, so that the people in the world, the people see the mm, and they say, well, that's clever or that sounds mean or that's bright or but if they see the tears as well as that in some way, and I don't really know how to do it, then they might say, wow, there might be something really uh, personal and caring and eternal and dangerous here, not just uh, the ability to turn a good phrase. So that's a an exhortation, a warning really to everybody who clapped for, for Doug when he said what he had to say. and for you and for me, because frankly, I think I need to say that because I am wired to be a, a person who puts down stupidity, and I have to work really hard to, to manifest tenderness.
4: I appreciate that very much. I do want to encourage you. Maybe it won't encourage you, <laughs> but every time you read something in Credenda, uh, Credenda Agenda, just tell
0: yourself, they're holding back. And <laughs> yeah, that worries me. That worries me. Something that, uh, a little practical thing with your small group or with your church staff or whatever, that's really interesting to do. And that's to get one of these little uh, personality tests, temperament analysis tests, Myers Briggs or something like that, and have everybody in your group take it as if they were Jesus. Answer the questions the best way they can as how they think Jesus would answer the questions. And you'll be surprised at the, the way the scores come out and how we view Jesus and how often he reflects happens to just reflect our temperament. And it's an, an interesting little exercise when we're trying to think through this, uh, what would Jesus do? Let's, uh, let's we, we're out of time. Let's get down to your, uh, to your suggestions. Uh, who is uh, someone that has turned the world upside down that you admire, and, and can you recommend a good biography about them? Somebody. We don't have much time, so jump in, Al.
3: I just have to say, Martin Luther. Uh, I, I gain more sustenance, humanly speaking, from reading Luther and about Luther than any other saint uh, in the history of the church. He comes as close as anyone I know to a man who never had an unarticulated thought. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was either recorded, written down by him, or recorded by his students, or a part of uh, uh, of the entire corpus. But th- there's a man who was a real man. Uh, and uh, who
0: in whom God's glory and it's just uh, recently been discovered he was a southern Baptist is that correct (laughs) Uh, I'm glad you're on to that and uh, (laughs) I read it in credenda (laughs) agenda what would you recommend a good biography there are so many Uh, Which would you recommend one?
3: Oh, there are so many, as a matter of fact. And for for Luther, the most accessible is still Roland Baton's Here I Stand. I mean, if you haven't read that, you're not serious about understanding church history, and uh, you're just robbing yourself, impoverishing yourself. Some other interesting ones are Heiko Obermann, uh, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. And uh, then there's a massive three-volume book. biography by Brecht and others. has been translated out of the German, available from Fortress Press. It's just some fascinating material. But the best thing is to read Luther. Get his material, start with the bondage of the will or the lectures on Romans and just have at it. Great. Somebody else's suggestion.
4: Doug. I'm currently reading a wonderful biography of William Tyndall uh, by David Daniel. Um, he has recently he's put out, I think through Yale, uh, Tyndall's New Testament and his um, as much of the Old Testament as Tyndall translated and he's done this biography of Tyndall and Tyndall is one of the unsung heroes of the Reformation but certainly of the English uh, Reformation nine-tenths of the King James Version of the New Testament is his originally and and as much of the Old Testament the same proportion that he did Uh, Tyndall was a wonderful man of God a wonderful scholar Uh, the epitome of what the early Puritans were scholarship on fire Uh, I, I would recommend David Daniels' biography of William Tyndall. Great.
0: R.C.?
2: A couple. Before I did, I have to say something still about this. What would Jesus do? I notice that Jesus does not treat everybody alike. That when he's dealing with the lambs, he's the most tender, gentle person you can imagine. When he's dealing with the woman caught in adultery, with those who are in shame, with those who are broken. He is so sensitive and tender, it's unbelievable. When he deals with the leaders who are in positions of power, he asks no quarter and gives none. In fact, he's far more polemical than any of us could ever be. And so was Luther. The great trick, I think, is to know the difference, when to be tender and when to be tough. And I sure don't always know it's a whole lot easier to be tough <laughs> than it is to be tenor. But back to your question, Ian Murray's uh, biography of Edwards, Elizabeth Dodd's biography of Edwards' marriage to a difficult man, bayes 's biography of Calvin. You know, I mean, it, it, get getting better than that sort of thing. But John, we'll give you the last word. John
1: Bunyan is the one I would say because his book, Pilgrim's Progress, is the whole of Reformed thinking, and it's been translated into more languages than any other book, and it's been sold more than any book of the Bible, so it's upset the world. And just get the three volumes from, I think, Banner of Truth and read his own stuff.